Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about the short story, The Changeling, originally published in 1968 in Orbit 3. And reprinted in the story collection, Castle of Days. So Brandon, I, I have to say up front that I was actually quite disappointed in this story. Um, I really thought The Changeling was going to be the novelization of the Star Trek episode of the same name, <laughs> uh, which had, uh, had aired only a few months uh, earlier. I see. Um, no, in fact, actually, uh, I was quite excited by this story. I think it's, yeah. a, it's a magnificent story, and I'm really looking forward to digging into this. But I do yeah. want to say that it does actually occur to me, I do think that the Star Trek episode has a little something to do with this. Uh, we've already noticed and noted that Gene Wolfe was definitely watching in Star Trek when it aired. Yes. And um, yes. this episode of Star Trek called The Changeling is actually what is disappointing to me. It's actually a classic episode. It's really one of the best Star Trek episodes. But the title, has it is a, it's a bad title. There is actually no sort of changeling thing happening. Uh, no no babies are, are changed uh, yeah. uh, or, or replaced in this, uh, in this Star Trek episode. So I'm envisioning that Gene Wolfe was, you know, sitting there on Friday night with his bowl of potato chips watching Star Trek air on NBC and said, <laughs> there's no changeling in this episode called The Changeling. And I think that was probably the, uh, the impetus for this story. Yeah, it has this, nothing to do with Star Trek. This story is also a massive improvement upon last week's House of Ancestors. There is almost no resemblance between the writer who wrote House of Ancestors and the writer who wrote The Changeling. Yes, absolutely. And I, I won't bury the lead. I loved this story. And I will say that Mark uh, Armini in his uh, book, Light and Shadow, says that this is the story in which Gene Wolfe arrives. And I would say by story number three, if you've arrived at story number three, you're doing a good job. Doing real well. Yeah, but we'll see how we... practice. I mean, he's... 37 37 i think at, at this, this point yep 37 or th- yeah 37 yeah. at this point in 1968 um but we'll see if we agree with 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 mark at, at the end of this so yeah. um without any further ado brennan why don't you uh, take us through the plot of the changeling gladly the changeling begins with a prologue where our as yet unnamed narrator informs the reader that the following paper that this story is being written on will be stored in the gut of a cave um, we're given the narrator's musings on what happens to most paper once it's stored in filing cabinets and mailboxes. Yeah, no respect yeah. for kind of his contemporary office culture. We're also given hints that the narrator is very familiar with his natural surroundings. He knows the wildlife well around the river um, where the story is being told. Yeah, there's a really great uh, sentence there that I, I'd actually love to read, even though it doesn't, I don't think it's of any real consequence. It's just absolutely beautiful. There is a great stone-beaked, hook-billed, snapping turtle living under the bank here. And in the spring, when the waterfowl have nested and brooded, he swims beneath their chicks more softly than any shadow. It's great. This whole story's full sentences like this. And in fact, as I was was preparing the recap, I thought, I would rather just read this story aloud to our audience (laughs) than muck it up with with my own words. This story is really very beautiful if not a little confusing at points. So the story begins in earnest with the following line, which is shortly after the line that Glenn read. Um, After we're given this prologue, the narrator says, still, I have a tale to tell. And a tale untold is one sort of crime. Yeah, and that's that's what a great manifesto that is from from Wolf himself. Yeah. In some ways, that might be his manifesto or one of his manifestos on on writing. And I have to say, I love this opening. This opening is really Lovecraftian, and of course, we know Gene Wolf is a was an avid reader of H.P. Lovecraft. But you get this Lovecraftian op- opening of you know I'm burying the count of my strange tale because who knows what will happen to me. But people have to know the scary truth about the world. Right. Um, I think done much more artfully here by Wolf than I think right. uh, even Lovecraft, even in his you prime. Know, ba- basically, ever did. Wolf is saying, "What's the difference between me putting this in a cave or a filing cabinet? They're the same, you know, and they'll, they'll both maybe be discovered and maybe not." I really want to read the paragraph following um, that a tale told is one sort of crime because I think it's important to keep what's revealed in this section in mind as we go through this story. Wolf writes, I was in the army serving in Korea when my father died. That was before the North invaded, and I was supposed to be helping a captain teach demolition to the ROK soldiers. The army gave me compassionate leave when the hospital in Buffalo sent a telegram saying how sick he was. I suppose everyone moved as fast as they could. I know I did. But he died while I was flying across the Pacific. I looked into his coffin. 
where the blue silk lining came up to his hard brown cheeks and crowded his working shoulders and went back to Korea. He was the last family I had and things changed for me then. I just, I think it's important to note that the narrator has a family at, the, at this point in the story. And yeah. we'll, we'll discuss why that matters yeah, a little that's bit gonna, later that's on. Gonna, that's going to matter. I want to point out just for our readers who may not be familiar with the Korean War that when he says that he's in the army in Korea before the North invaded, this places this this action sometime between 1945 and, and, and 1950. It's 1950 when the North invades. And I think we might as well set up here as well that Gene Wolfe is a Korean War veteran. He certainly he, is. Yeah. He served in Korea uh, between April and July 1953, though the, July is the terminal date because that's when the ceasefire happens. The war, of course, not over. And in fact, this is very much in the news as we record this this week with North Korea threatening to uh, launch a nuclear missile well, at Guam. So says unnamed intel sources. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, let's not get distracted from right. that. My point is really just to say that, that, that yeah. Gene Wolfe was, was there you know, during, during combat phase. This um, has been he a is constant, a Korean War veteran. Yeah, and, and, and Korea has remained a constant kind of boogeyman in American politics ever since. Ever since, Korea. yeah. Uh, even at the time of writing this in uh, 1968, this still would have been something people cared a lot about. In fact, very much something people cared a lot about is the Vietnam War is, is completely raging uh, at this point. And huge segments of our society are having very big questions about why we are fighting land wars in Asia. Yes, yes. So mo- moving along, uh, back to the story, we're, we're given a brief history of the narrator's military service. He was left behind in a Chinese prison camp during the Re- Korean War. Uh, we know he also went AWOL, and he was court-martialed for this. And we know he is sent to Fort Leavenworth, which is the army prison. And upon his release, he decides to go back home to Cassonsville with $400 to his name. Yeah, I want to uh, talk a little bit about what happens to him uh, in Korea and why he's only coming back to Cassonsville now. Right. Um, this was actually something that happened to about 22 Americans, actually, I think 21 Americans, um, as uh, there were, you know, uh, thousands of American and British soldiers were taken prisoners of war by the Chinese or the North Korean army during during the war. And there was a massive uh, prisoner exchange. And the negotiations for this actually were really quite tricky. And one of the sticking points of the negotiations for the prisoner exchange with North Korea and with China was that um, all prisoners needed to be given an option to not be repatriated, to stay where they are, which is to say that South Koreans in particular wanted North Korean soldiers who they had taken prisoner to have the option of staying in South Korea. This was a huge sticking point. Uh, The only way that that was agreed to by the Chinese and the North Koreans was if the same deal was made for British and American prisoners. And so there were 21 American POWs who volunteered not to come back to America and instead wanted to stay in China. And Wolf here is positing that our narrator was one of those or, you know, the 22nd of them that we don't know anything about. Um, And this was a huge deal at the time. There's several books about these men, um, all of whom are very, very interesting. Um, One of them in particular was a a sort of black activist Mm. um, who didn't want to come back to America because why would you want to live in a society as racist as America when you could be a factory worker in communist China? He did eventually come back to America. And he's got a real interest in life, but all of these guys do. And I would encourage our listeners actually to check that out on their own. Um, and we'll fudge some of the details of this, you know, to make this story work, right. for example, right? Um, for example, our narrator, we learn in the paragraph you just recapped for us, uh, was court-martialed for staying in China. But the 21 real men who did this were actually all dishonorably discharged mm. while they were still in China, which meant that when they did come back to America, and almost all of them did, um, they couldn't be court-martialed because they're not soldiers anymore. Right. So they weren't punished in any way um, for that. The so having a dishonorable discharge is, is a real punishment, um, you know, on its own. On its own, indeed. And just one more thing before uh, before we get back to the recap, Brandon. I do want to point out that this town of Cassonsville uh, appears again in the Gene Wolfe corpus. Um, it is the imaginary town where Gene Wolfe's novel Peace occurs. And this is one of my two favorite Gene Wolfe novels. So I was <laughs> I was overjoyed to to see it mentioned here. Yeah, I'm real excited to to get to Peace when we finally get around to to it. Um, one one thing I did want to say was. For our readers keeping score, please note the number of times we've already said the word change, exchange, changed. This is peppered throughout the whole story. This narrator is a character who has been experiencing 
many, many forms of change since his time leaving Cassonsville. Returning to the story, the narrator describes his childhood friends and the games they would play on the Kanakasi River. Yeah, this was delightful. Um, this sounded exactly like my childhood, and it made me want to go back and look at that piece of my life, uh, which is how Wolf describes this. Uh, exactly. The, the narrator tells us about his friend Ernie Katha and the Palmieri siblings, of whom Mary is the oldest, Peter is the ringleader, and Paul is the youngest and a pest. Our narrator hitchhikes into town and is picked up by none other than Ernie Katha. They begin to talk in a regular school reunion mood. They remember that when they used to play with the Palmieri kids, how ruthlessly they treated Paul. The narrator tells of how he rubbed a cow pile in Paul's hair and caught blazes from Mama Palmieri. That's a jerk thing to do. Yeah, that's no good. Don't do that. Uh, <laughs> Stay Ernie, in school. Yeah. Ernie and our narrator, who we finally learn his name, it's Pete, uh, they get into a little argument as they try to remember the details of a scrap Pete got into with Mary Palmieri over the narrator's treatment of a frog. Pete remembers he got into a fight with Peter Palmieri, but Ernie says he must be misremembering because Peter Palmieri is only eight or nine years old now. Peter Palmieri couldn't have had a fight with Pete because he wasn't even born when the scrap allegedly happened. Peter reflects upon the fight as he remembered it. It took place on a useless island, as he describes it, in the middle of the channel of the Kanakasi River. He absolutely remembers the fight taking place with Peter Palmieri. Pete and Ernie continue down the road, and Pete gets dropped off at the Palmieri's Motel, the Cassonsville Tourist Lodge. Mama Palmieri recognizes him immediately, and he gets a cryptic and rare smile from Papa Palmieri. Yeah, there's a great description of Papa Palmieri here that I, I just want to read. It's a sure. whole paragraph, but I'm okay. just going to read it because it's so beautiful. He was a small, dark, philosophical man who seldom spoke. And I suppose people meeting the two of them for the first time would assume that Mama dominated her husband. The truth was that she regarded him as infallible in every crisis. And for practical purposes, Mama was almost right. He had the inexhaustible patience and rock-bound common sense of a Sicilian burrow. All the qualities that have made that tough, diminutive animal the traditional companion of wandering friars and desert rats. It's a wonderful paragraph. I, I, I also kind of marked this one out to read. It's a great example of, of the voice that Gene Wolfe is, is kind of channeling through Pete, our narrator, and just, again, demonstrates Gene Wolfe's ability to have these closely observed insights into marriages, family relations, and, and things of that nature. Yeah, and just a great way to develop this character. It just, just really, this that what I just read was three sentences, and it tells me everything I need to know about this person for the purposes of this story. Yeah, it's just masterfully done. This is this is how to introduce a character. Right. Wolf knows everything about this person and tells us what we need to know. Oh yeah, for the absolutely. Sake of the story. You yeah. Know? Mama and Papa Paul Mary insist Pete stay for free in Maria's room at the motel. But Pete wants a cabin, and he rents it at $5 a night. They also insist on feeding him, and he says, sure. Paul Palmieri eventually comes home, and Pete barely recognizes him. But he instantly likes him. Mama begins to wonder when Peter will get home, and Paul tells his mother that he saw Peter playing with a gang of kids. Soon, Peter Palmieri comes home, and our narrator is shocked to see the eight-year-old boy he remembered from his childhood. The next day, Saturday... Paul takes Pete, the narrator, around town, and they end up being rowed over to the island, uh, you know, the aforementioned island, by a boy who was playing there. Once they're there, they discover that there are three other boys on the island, including Peter. The boys were playing with wooden swords. Immediately, the narrator, our narrator, feels disoriented. He feels as though the island is stuck in his unremembered past. This, uh, this scene with the kids here on the island feels a lot like Peter Pan, and I don't think this is accidental. Not accidental at all. It's not accidental that we have two characters in different stages of life named Pete and Peter. Not accidental that we have these characters like Maria, who's the mother hen of this group of playing boys. Right, she's the Wendy. She's the Wendy. Um, there's, there's a lot of echoes of Peter Pan here, and I, I thought about this as, as I was reading the story, and I'm, I've yet to draw a conclusion, so I'm excited to kind of <laughs> verbally yeah, process we, we will, yeah. yeah, we will get to this in our discussion for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, so Pete and Paul decide to take a bet 
on whether or not Paul can throw a rock across to the shore. Paul throws the rock, and Pete thinks it falls at least 30 feet short. But Paul insists he hit the shore, and he's willing to do it again. Pete doesn't want to push the issue, but the narrator does say the boys look at Paul with the deep contempt a normal kid feels for a welcher. Pete and Paul eventually make their way back to the Palmieri's for dinner. After dinner, Pete sits out on the porch with Papa Palmieri and tells him about the incident with the frog as he remembered it. Papa Palmieri tells Pete a story about when Peter, the young Peter, came to the family. He said he had a good job in Cassonsville, and one night he came home, and the boy was there with Mama Palmieri and the infant Maria. Papa Palmieri felt he shouldn't do anything about the situation, and the boy just ended up moving in. As the other Palmieri children grew, Peter stayed the same age. It was as if everyone knew about Peter and that he was the Palmieri's boy. Papa Palmieri says he even got a letter from his own father, who would presumably not otherwise have known about the boy's existence, asking how the boy was doing. Papa Palmieri does some stealth testing to see whether Peter is a demon. <laughs> yeah, he sprinkles holy water on him three times, three he times. says. Yeah, yeah and, and he seems satisfied when the boy does not blister or scream yeah, I when the holy water is poured on him. I would have done seven times. You got to do seven. Yeah. Um, the next day, Pete decides to skip church at Sunday, and he goes on a little bit of an investigation throughout the town of this Peter Palmieri. Pete has a distinct memory of where Peter stood in the school photo that they took when they were in the same uh, grade school class. He goes back to his old school, which is a Catholic school, which is the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception. And he gets one of the sisters to show him the photo in question. I want to read this paragraph because it does such an excellent job of putting us in Pete's position. The picture was a little dim and faded now. And having seen the school building on my way to the convent, I was surprised at how much newer it had looked then. I found the spot where I had stood, second row from the back, and three spaces over from our teacher, Sister Therese. But my face wasn't there. Between the two girls, tiny in the photograph, was the sharp, dark face of Peter Palmieri. No one stood behind him, and the boy in front was Ernie Katha. I ran my eyes over the list of names at the bottom of the picture, and his name was there, but mine was not. So here we're in this really uncanny space. Yeah, this is terrifying. I, I really was uh, identifying with the narrator at this point and, and imagining myself looking at my own fourth grade picture to discover that you know I'm not, I'm not there standing next to John Gollan. Someone else is. Yeah, it's absolutely horrifying. This is one yeah. thing Wolf does really well. Wolf infrequently does harder moments but when he does they're always this uncanny this this sense of displacement and and, and uncanny comes from the german word like unheimlich which means like not from home like it's it's yeah it's, it's, it's not it's unfamiliar it's uncomfortable yeah. and i had goosebumps when i read this passage i've got goosebumps right now having heard you read it again it's really good i think the only other horror moment from wolf that really grabs me this way is the scene with the alzebos in in, in book of the new sun when severian is staying with severian another kind of changeling moment yeah uh, spoilers by the way yeah spoilers <laughs> pete begins to unravel. He goes to the newspaper office and asks them about a boy himself, Pete Palmer, who lived in the town and no one can remember him. He looks through old files and he comes up empty. Yeah, and I want to I want to say a couple of things here. One, I don't want us to overlook the fact that we're discovering here that our narrator's name is almost identical to that of the magical boy who doesn't age. It's whose his name is Peter Palmieri and our narrator's name is Pete Palmer. The other thing I want to point out is that um you're right to say that he's losing it. He's actually losing it before he even sees the picture. When he goes to uh, talk to the sisters of the Immaculate Conception, and is he actually first wants to see Peter Palmieri's school records, and they won't 
give them to him. And he's actually angrily aggressive and even a little violent with them. He threatens them. Right. Um, and it's only when they when they really are firm, as as I think only nuns can be. Um, uh, <laughs> well, as only the, nuns can frighten a grown man. The, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> like then when he says, "Well, fine, let me see the pictures." You can't not let me see the pictures. Right. I'm in the pictures. And then he continues to unravel as he gets to the newspaper yeah. office. But the unraveling happens before he even sees the picture. That's true. But that that moment when he's not in the picture, he really comes apart at the seams. Oh, no, ab- absolutely. Yeah. I just wanted to make that detail about yes. him with interacting with the nun is going to be important in our discussion, I think. Oh, wonderful. Pete goes back to the hotel. He grabs his bag and he goes out to the island, which he finds to be lonely and peaceful. He pokes around and he finds a cave on the south side and he goes into the cave and he sleeps. He becomes a hermit who never leaves the island. And we have just been told his story. Many people still come to visit him on the island. They bring him food and gifts. The boys still come, of course. I wasn't counting them when I said one or two people. Papa was wrong. Peter still has the same last name as always, and I guess now he always will. But the boys don't call him by it much. And that paragraph closes out our story. Yeah, what a great story. What a, a, a chilling story uh, with an awful lot of fodder here for discussion. Brandon. Yes, yes. So, I mean, my classic question is always, Glenn, what do you think? Yeah, let's let's dig in. Yeah. There are three things, Brandon, that I really want to talk about here. Um, so one of them is this question that we're constantly going to be asking on, on these wolf stories and, I don't know, every chapter of the solar cycle, which is, so what actually happened in this story? So that's something I want to to get to. I also want to look at the religious interpretations in this mm. story or the religious symbols, religious uh, inferences in this story. And then the third thing that I want us to talk about, Brandon, is is coming home again after military service, which, of course, is something uh, yeah. that, that you and I have both done <laughs> and Gene Wolfe has done and so has Pete Palmer. But let's start at the beginning. Let's start with what actually happened. That is the question of who or what is Peter Palmieri, and what is his relationship with Pete Palmer? Mm-hmm. And I want to start us off here by uh, invoking Mark Aramini, um, who in his book, his really excellent book that everyone should take a look at, uh, Between Light and Shadow, offers up kind of two major interpretations of this story that he's taken from sort of his own thinking about the story, but also he has he has looked at what a lot of other critics mm-hmm. um, on various websites and in other publications have had to say. He kind of categorizes, lumps all of it into two basic interpretations. And the first of those is that Peter Palmieri and Pete Palmer were switched at birth, right? That Peter Palmieri is Pete Palmer's changeling. He's some kind of fairy who has taken Pete Palmer's place. The other interpretation is that Peter Palmieri exists as the result of some kind of supernatural or mystical split with the natural Pete Palmer, Mm. um, and that this is something that happened around the fourth grade, which is why, for example, Pete Palmer doesn't see Pete Palmer in that picture. He sees Peter Palmieri hmm. because he is, in fact, Peter Palmieri. Those are the sort of two interpretations. What What do you have to say, Brandon? Yeah, I really struggle, I think, with both of them. The reason why I read that uh, first paragraph I read is because we're given a completely distinct history for the narrator, his relationship to his parents, and moving away from Cassinsville when he's in the fifth grade, that I think is meant to be meaningful. Gene Wolfe could have kept the childhood history of Pete Palmer and his tragic loss of his parents out of this story. And my question is then to kind of challenge both of those interpretations is why keep them in? I think that Peter Palmieri is Pete Palmer's changeling, but I also think there is a level of trauma being danced around in the story as well. Yeah. And I, so I want us to get to that, but I think let's start maybe by looking at some of the arguments, um, not against each of these interpretations, but let's look at the arguments for them. Let's go ahead and just catalog them. Um, And I'll I'll get us started here with the sort of thematic arguments for the switched at birth hypothesis, the the, the change lane hypothesis. Um, One thing I would say, it is the title of the story. So there might be something to that. But let's look at some of the more detailed arguments in favor of of that interpretation. Pete Palmer, the the narrator, feels out of place throughout the story, right? Mm -hmm. And you already pointed out how many times change as just as a word comes up in the story. He's been exchanged. Mm-hmm. He has been changed. 
Yeah, the, just that. the word yeah. change itself the, the is prisoner everywhere. The prisoner exchange to me is like the most interesting piece of, of Yes, the story. absolutely. It starts with the prisoner exchange. The narrator prefers to stay in China rather than return to America because he feels out of place in America. But then the narrator finds that he changes, right, his mind and can't stay in China either. Right. He doesn't feel in place, doesn't feel, he feels out of place there too. But then he can't even, when he gets to his hometown, he can't even live in his hometown, right? He has to go live on a, in a cave on an island. Right. Then on the island, he still feels out of place in the only place where I really wanted to be. That's one of the things he says, right? So he's never comfortable. He's never in place, right? Right. I think that's a thematic argument in favor of the switched at birth interpretation. Yeah. I, so I, I like that. I think, I think given that, argument i prefer the second <laughs> you do two, okay well let me let me the, fifth, the switch to fifth grade okay let me i have actually just a little more evidence in favor of this <laughs> uh the switch to birth argument and okay. then let's take a look at the mystical split argument so the other thing that i would say that's in favor of the switch to birth argument is that pete palmer the narrator is constantly in flux he's constantly changing while everyone around him stays exactly the same, right? Uh, his comrades in the army uh, remember things differently than he does, he says. Mm-hmm. And that's actually something, this is why he says he went to prison for having stayed in China and right. some of them didn't. And then he, he recognizes everyone in his hometown immediately, but none of them recognize him except for Mama Palmieri. Right. She's the only person who recognizes him. Everyone else thinks he's a stranger when he first shows up. And he Well upon the first impression. First impression. That's right. First impression. They remember when he says who he is, they do remember his existence. The same thing kind of goes for Paul though, when he says, I don't think you'd recognize him now. So there's there's a little bit more going on, I think, there textually that that could be also just the town has changed everything. Every he, he has trouble with memory, right? And so that that's either you wouldn't recognize Paul because I'm Ernie and I just have been sitting with you and boy, you don't remember anything, right? Right, yeah. Or more has changed than you really are willing to recognize. Yeah, I think that those are some real strong objections to the switch to birth hypothesis. Yeah, we sure. also, I mean, we also have the history up to fifth grade, which we're given explicitly. Mm-hmm. And we're also told that Peter, when he comes uh, to the house by Papa Paul Mary's story, is already older than Mary. And Mary is definitely older than Pete. That's right. And so um, maybe I'm we sorry, can even Maria. just, maybe we, we can even just look at some of the objections for the switch to birth hypothesis. And then, then let's just do the same for the mystical split yeah. hypothesis. So if... Pete Palmer and Peter Palmieri were switched at birth because Peter Palmieri is a changeling. He's some kind of fairy creature. He's Peter Pan. How do we reconcile the fact that Pete Palmer isn't in the class photograph, right? Um, Well, that's what makes it so uncanny. Yes, exactly. So I don't, so that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. If they are both physically existing creatures who were in fact in fourth grade at the same time, they should both be in the photograph. Another problem with this interpretation is right. That the, is the coincidence of there being both a Palmer family and a Palmieri family in this one small town that strikes me as very unlikely, not impossible, but pretty unlikely. We are also told, of course, right, that Pete Palmer, the narrator, changed his name when he joined the army. In fact, I think he changed his name when he moved away from from Cassonsville in fifth grade. At the newspaper office, he says, Listen to me, please, sir. There was a boy named Pete Palmer. He was born in this town. He stayed behind when the prisoners were exchanged at at Panmunjom and went to Red China and worked in a textile mill there. They sent him to prison when he came back. He'd changed his name after he left here but that wouldn't make any difference. So he was Pete Palmer in the town, in Cassonsville. He changed his name after he left Cassonsville That's with right. his family in fifth grade. That's right. Yeah. Um, so the point is, yes, yeah. there's a Palmer family and a Palmieri right. family. That right. does seem extraordinarily unlikely to me. That's not my preferred reading because I think this is about war trauma. Which is yes. always about. So that's the yeah. That's the third reading, and we will we yeah. will get there. Um, and the reason I, I want to hold off on that just because I think you know Mark Armini is a pretty influential yes. reader of Gene Wolfe, and these are the sort of two interpretations that he prefers in his book. And so I want to I want to give I want to give Mark due diligence here yes. and engage engage with him as much as we can. So let's go through then the mystical split argument, yes. right? And a couple of things that I would say in favor of this notion that that something happened in the fourth grade that created from one person a Pete Palmer and a Peter Palmieri. Mm -hmm. One thing I would say is that splitting seems to be a significant theme in the story. For example, 1945 is a significant year in Pete's story, right? And um, this is the year that he's in fourth grade. This is the year that something happens that causes him and his 
father um, to leave town. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also the exact year in which uh, Korea split into two independent halves, which is kind of like our, our character background moment here. Yeah. The Palmers split from Cassonsville. Uh, Pete's parents die at different times. So there's a yeah. split in the family, uh, right? Leaving Pete's father split from his partner. Peter Palmieri and Pete Palmer both have opposite demeanors, right? Peter Palmieri is good and kind and merciful. We see that throughout the story. Pete is violent and cruel, at least to, right. to the frog, right? Right, when they're children. When yeah. they're children, right. And, and of course, that's that's the only time we see them together, right? Or, well, it, until he comes back as an adult. So, right. um, And one thing I would say, too, is that the school that the kids attend, right, as we pointed out, is the Immaculate Conception. Yes. Which, of course, is to say that that name also refers to a mystical or supernatural birth right. of someone who's born without original sin or without evilness. And that, that may also kind of describe Peter Palmieri here, who doesn't seem to have an evil bone in right. his body. So those are some of the arguments in favor of the mystical split. I I have to tell you, I prefer that reading. If I if I had to choose between those two, yeah, and we don't, I'd, I'd prefer that reading because it allows for much of the mystery that Wolf builds into the story. And and I am a big fan of leaving room for mystery in a story, particularly a story like this, which is about a hermit. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, it is uh it is toying with fairy the the you know fairy tale and it is i, I don't think we can discount papa palmary's story in this this is the only history mm-hmm. we have of Peter yeah that's palmary. a huge problem with the with yeah. this interpretation with the split interpretation yeah. right because memory as you point out is such a, a problematic thing in this story and that people are not remembering someone possibly many someones are not remembering things correctly. Right. But the one person who is kind of presented as, as not having been affected by memory stuff really at all is Papa Palmieri. And yeah, so there's, there's if his memory of Peter being in his home when Maria is a baby, if that's true, then this interpretation cannot be true. Right. Right. They can't have mystically split. split, And also they couldn't have been, changed at birth because there's no birth for Peter. And this is maybe where the Immaculate Conception. So what I'm saying is, is there's room for a third reading. And here, here's something that we all know that Wolf is, is heavily influenced by uh, Jorge Luis Borges as well. And there's a Borges story called the, I believe it's the Library of Babel or the Library of Babel or something like that, where every text that could ever be written, every combination of words is is written. And, and Borges only describes every room is has five walls. And Borges only describes what's on four of the walls. And the story kind of leaves you questioning with this nagging sense of what's on the fifth wall. And this is kind of a method of reading, kind of using the that kind of interrogation of a story um, is something I often bring to Wolf is what are we told and what adds up and what's not told. Right. And there are a lot of things that don't add up here. But there's quite a lot that do. So Ernie and Pete both remember the event with the frog, but they misremember who got into fight. But Pete Palmer was definitely the one who tortured Tortured the frog. That's right. And they both remember that. And they both remember the fight with Maria. And they just don't remember whether it was Paul or Peter who got into the fight. Pete Palmer is also the only one who remembers rightly that Peter Palmieri has never aged. And meanwhile, everybody else in the town thinks... And Papa. And Papa, right? So the question is, what's the fifth wall there? What what do, yeah, what do right. Papa and Pete yeah. have in common? So I think that there's a there's a third interpretation that you you mentioned that I think you prefer, and I think I prefer as well. Um, and this is this is related to the theme, the third thing I wanted to talk about of of coming home again after mm-hmm. military service. And and this story, in many ways, is about a narrator. It's about about our character who just wants to go back to the last place where everything felt safe and right and normal after an intense and military free. service and yeah. free, right? But he himself has changed so much that no such place exists anymore. Right. And you know, I think this from I don't want to put words in your mouth, Brandy, but for me this resonated for me getting out of the army and trying to go home again yeah. and and not being able to. Look, it's no mistake that that Gene Wolfe has this in Castle of Days as Homecoming Day. That's so I, right. For those of our readers who are not familiar with the premise of Castle of Days, it's a collection of Gene Wolfe short stories that he recommends reading on certain, I don't know, bank Hol- holidays, holidays and yeah. federal holidays and um, whatever he wants religious to define holidays. Holiday. Yeah. So this one is called Homecoming Day. And, you know, I've been out of high school for a long time, but at least when I was in high school, um, if you were like a vet, you might 
go back for like the homecoming game or something like that. The high school might do something for you. So this is definitely about homecoming, at least <laughs> textually or maybe extra textually as Gene Wolfe has put it in this story collection. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I can't imagine, you know, you and I didn't come home from the Korean War. I can't imagine what it's like to try to go home right. from the Korean War. So on this theme, I think within this theme, right, there's a third explanation for what is going on here with Peter Palmieri and Pete Palmer. And I will say that scholar Joan Gordon, who wrote this Starmont Reader's Guide about Gene Wolfe, sort of promotes this idea, though she doesn't she doesn't actually link it with his military service. And I think that's something you and I are going to do from our own perspective as veterans. Um, But she suggests that Pete Palmer and Peter Palmieri are the same person, right? That our narrator has constructed Peter Palmieri in his imagination as a sort of psychological break following some sort of family trauma that caused Pete and his father to leave Cassonsville in 1945. Um, she, and she's not the only one, I think Armini, Mark Armini takes this as kind of given, and many other people do take as given, that this is when Pete Palmer's mother died. Mm. And that this is sort of a trauma that creates this kind of psychological break where he's maybe idealized this childhood. Th- this childhood yes, right? absolutely. Um, and that... Perhaps a, a person could actually, I, this is me, this is not something John Gordon is saying, but, you know, to, to say that, that, that possibly a person could be confronted with that, that trauma, that sort of family loss in childhood, and continue on, yeah. to move away from home with your father, and to continue on, become an adult, and to always have this with you, but to not have it be devastating. But I think that the link here is that, I think you and I, Brandon, know for sure that when you are in the military and you're in some kind of military situation, you just want to go back to the last place that felt like home. Yeah. But that place, too, for him was a place of trauma, that he, he is kind of homeless. There is no home for him to, right. to come back to in some way. Well, so there he is. has to there is one. invent one. Right. There is one place, and that's the place where he was playing Peter Pan with his friends that's on right. the island. Yeah, this cave that um, he's going to live that's, in forever. You know, I've read a couple things here and there. Um, you know, I really wanted to focus on the recap, but I did do a little <laughs> extracurricular reading. Yeah, great. And I saw some things about the Peter Pan thing, and it just struck me as ultimately not convincing other than the this land of make-believe, the Neverland, where it's the return to the last safe place where the threats were not real. Um, and the, yeah, people, the swords are made of wood. Yes. They're not, there are no actual metal bayonets right. in, on this island. And it's, it's his ability to invent an idyllic setting for himself that he needs to go back to. Yeah, and it's the only place that he can live now is in a cave on right. this island where he lives by fishing and through the, the kindness and generosity of others. Right. Uh, and so that's, that's what I kind of see in this story. It wouldn't be a Gene Wolfe story if there weren't some element that made it genre fiction. And in this, the, I think the changeling is really this return to before the trauma. I think that that, that happens a lot uh, when people experience a, a post-traumatic stress disorder is what they're, they're in a heightened state and their time stops in a certain way. And there's a desire to go back to when you can reclaim that time that you lost to the trauma. And that is kind of what's going on here in this story, I think. I think so, too. And let's just put it as plainly as we can for our listeners, the the wolf pack, if you will. Um, Do you believe that there is a fairy changeling in this story? Yes or no? I do. You do? Oh, you do? Okay. I do think there is a physical Peter Paul Mary. I don't. But I think think he... He had served his purpose when Peter when Pete returns. I think so. Here's the thing: he's there. Peter Paul Mary is waiting for Pete to return to home, so he can kind of. I I don't know. I don't well, know. So strong I don't there. either. Yeah. If I had to pick but, one, I would say no. I, I don't. I would think say so. that that it's not clear to me that Peter is fully constructed because that would undermine almost everything that happens in this entire story. Yeah, I think that the argument in favor of of him not existing, of there not being any particular a sort of fairy creature yeah. of any sort, a changeling, um, is that everything that we're seeing is from the perspective of this right. heavily traumatized it, individual. It's clear at the end that Pete Palmer, at least in his mind, becomes Peter Paul Mary. 
or has absorbed, yeah, the, or reabsorbed this childhood to be somehow right. Well, he yeah. says he won't change his name, um, yeah, and, and it doesn't matter because they, people won't call him by that anymore yeah, anyway. He's, yeah, that's he's right. The hermit. Well, this is, uh, I think this is a contentious issue in this story. I really look forward to hearing from listeners uh, yes, what they have to I, I say about it. I would love to hear interpretations yeah. from our, from our yeah. readers and listeners. So, yeah. uh, let's, there's one more thing that I do want to talk about, Brandon, mm-hmm. that I think we cannot ignore in this story, and that is the religious stuff. Um, religious interpretations, religious influences, religious yeah. inferences. Um, maybe I'll just start us off with some of the obvious stuff, and yeah. then, you, you, then you can do the heavy lifting. Okay. I'll do the easy part here. <laughs> and just point out that there are all these names, right? Yes. Okay, so first thing is, the, the main names in this story are Peter, Paul, and Maria. And of course, these are the most important humans in the Christian church. Um, and these are the names that these kids have. Yes. Um, Papa and Mama might have some significance. Papa, of course, is the that's what that's the Pope, right? Right. Um, in English, it's Pope. In every other language, it's Papa. Um, and um, Mother, uh, Mama in the Romance languages, and especially Latin, the language I use for my day job, that refers to the church. It's Pope mm-hmm. and Church. Um, Palmer and Palmieri, which are the same same word, they both mean Palmer, um, signifies a medieval pilgrim who had visited the Holy Land, right? So some more religious names here. And uh, just the, the last one I'll bring up here is Ernie Katha. Katha, C-O-T-H-A as an acronym, is it's a common acronym for Church of the Holy Apostles, right? If you are, um, <laughs> if, you're the, if, you're a, if you're a bishop, if you're a priest, you're a nun, a brother at Church yeah. of the Holy Apostles, you never write that out, you write Katha, right? And of course, Wolf knows this. Um, and Ernie, of course, is short for earnest, right? There's some yes. earnestness. So this is the earnest church of the Holy Apostles. That is to say, like, vigilantly truthful church of the yes. Holy Apostles, and uh, which I think is an interesting name for this one character who insists that our narrator is misremembering things. Right, right. Uh, for example. So those were some of the things that I saw in religion. Brandy, do you have anything right. you want to add? Well, we have the story that takes place from Friday to Sunday. Right. Um, <laughs> which in, in, in and what does that mean? Christian theology is uh, the period between Good Friday and uh, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, so you have that, this story taking place at this time, ending on a Sunday where our narrator finds his true home. Yeah, in a um, cave. In a cave. Which is, of course, where, where he Christ falls was buried and resurrected. Yes, yeah. indeed. You have the kind of fun competition between Peter and Paul if you go in for that sort of thing. Oh, no. I think <laughs> yeah. that's definitely there. <laughs> yeah. Who's the most important figure in the church? Is right. it Peter and, or is and it there, Paul? There's no, no, they're throwing stones, which is Peter, you know, the name Peter, which is uh, Caiaphas, the stone. It mean, yes, right. Yeah. Peter, Petrus means yes. rock. And in fact, I will point out that there are several incidents with rocks here, right? Stone appears even in the first sentence of this story, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, Pete Palmer wants to tie a rock to the frog so it'll sink. Yes. The island in the river is dubbed rocky and also dubbed useless. Uh, Pete Palmer hits Maria in the eye with a stone, and Papa Palmieri has rock-bound common sense. So rocks and Indeed. stones are a theme here. Peter, we should note, is also kind of the violent <laughs> apostle. He is the well. violent apostle, that's uh, right. He, he ch- uh, cuts the ear off of the yep. uh, he- head of one of the men who come to arrest Jesus. Yeah, let's let's talk about about. Peter the Apostle and swords here. So uh, one yep. thing I want to point out, Brandon, is that when we get to the island in the middle of the of the river, um, we're, we we see that these kids are doing this kind of Peter Pan mm-hmm. game that they're 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 playing pirates, right? Um, and, they I, have, and, and it's important to note, I think, that the two the two phrases Gene Wolfe uses to describe children's game in the story is like Vikings or something, Vi- yeah. pirates or something. That's right. Which is this kind of casual affectation that's not quite the right word but this casual like ability memory to isn't doesn't need to be perfect right it was vikings or something it was maybe it wasn't vikings at all maybe it wasn't pirates and all but the yeah. swords here are important because uh, wolf describes the swords to us as being uh, one long piece yes. of wood with a shorter piece of wood yes. uh, nailed into the cross beams and then tells us that these are plunged into the ground what wolf does not say is that if we were to look at these cross-beamed swords plunged into the ground, they would look like wooden crosses. And there would be three of them. And um, So actually not clear in the text here in Wolf's so text that there would be three. It would, it's not... So this is the he, kind of yeah. what's what adds up here, is the one boy rows them across. There are three other boys on the island, including... Peter, Paul, Mary, yeah. and their swords are plunged into the ground. Oh, you're right. So the one boy who rode them across may not have had a sword. Exactly. That's Okay, that's very shrewd. Because I was, 
I wanted it to be three, and I was troubled that it wasn't, but I think you've demonstrated that I it think was. It, I think we can safely assume it's three swords. So let's, let's, let's get into Peter and the sword in the Gospels. I'm going to read mm-hmm. to you Matthew 26, 51, 52. Suddenly, one of those with Jesus put his hand on his sword, drew it, and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Um, and just uh, for due diligence here, let's read John, even though I don't really care for John. <laughs> it's John eighteen ten eleven. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? So one thing I think the, what's interesting about Peter and the sword here, right, is, as you point out, Peter is the violent mm-hmm. one of the apostles, and so is Pete Palmer. Yes. Right? He's a violent person. I wanted to make sure we got in our recap uh, the bit where he is threatening nuns yeah. because they won't show him personal files that, this, in fact, I mean, they shouldn't show him. This is kind of him. classic Peter in the Gospels as well, who's who, who kind of pretends to be crazy <laughs> instead of admitting he's one of the disciples um, mm-hmm. who, who who indeed does unravel um, until basically until Christ returns. I mean, he's he's hiding in a house, frightened, um, while while Christ before the resurrection of Christ in the in the Gospels. Um, this is this is like Peter, the apostle. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Pete Palmer really feels like the Apostle Peter to me, and that, of course, is no accident. So one other thing I'd like to bring up here on this, in the theme of religion here, is the frog, right? This frog is is really this kind of central episode here in this story where yeah. where Pete Palmer is hard is a hard kid to to um, sympathize with because he is torturing animals. He he wants to tie a rock to this frog's leg so it will sink, right. and when he can't do that, he just stabs it, right? Yes. In the Paul and Mary and possibly another person named Peter are attempting to, to right. stop him. And I, I, I yeah, just go real it. briefly do want to say in, in this short 10-page story, only two episodes are repeated twice. It is this, the frog episode, yeah. where we're kind of, it's not narrated twice, but it's told twice, at least to the people in the story, characters of the story, and then also the um, uh, portion about the prisoner about staying behind in China. Yeah. also told twice. And these are these are the most important things yes. in the story, I think. So um, frogs actually feature pretty heavily in uh, medieval Christian symbolism. These are, of course, medieval Christians are the people I study uh, for my day job. And the understanding of the frog in medieval Christian symbolism is actually taken from the anonymous uh, late antique Greek text called the, the physiologus, that is sort mm. of words about um, uh, physiology, words about, uh, words about creatures. So in this text, frogs and toads, which we think of as kind of being two distinct types of animal, in this text, frogs and toads are seen as two halves of the same animal. One of them is good and one of them is bad, much like Pete Palmer and Peter Palmieri, where Pete Palmer is bad and Peter Palmieri is is so good as to be almost like uh, the Virgin Mary, yes. right? Um, let me just read uh, from this uh, this text for you. I won't do it in Greek, uh, but I will say this is um, <laughs> not my translation. This is a translation from uh, Guy, uh, Mer- uh, I should say Guy Mermier. He's a French scholar, so he doesn't say Guy, he says Guy. Um, this is what the text says. There are two types of frogs, frogs who live in water and others who live on earth. The frog living in water, if the water dries out, flees from there and looks for a large pond. On the contrary, the frog living on the earth, when the rain is lacking and when the earth is dry, remains in the same place and does not die, but prays to God to send the rain where it usually lives. And the next paragraph here, the explanation, the gloss on this is that, similarly, the bad and gluttonous monk, if food and drink are missing from the monastery, he takes refuge in another monastery to fatten his body, which is merely food for worms. But the good and just monk, the one who does not become a monk to fill his stomach or for wealth, but for the salvation of his soul, that monk will stand afflictions and pain like the frog of the earth and prays to God constantly. So God gives him all the things that he needs. Thank and you I just, for reading that. That's, yeah. that's terrific insight, I think, into the story. I think so too. But yeah. I, I want to point out here that our narrator changes from the one to the other in this story. He the does. story ends with him living in a cave surviving on what God gives him. Yes. Yes. 
Absolutely. He is, he, yeah. Yeah. He's the bad frog who becomes a good frog yeah. in this story. Right. A very deeply hidden morality tale. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, how amazing it is, is it that Gene Wolfe has written this sci-fi story that, re- that the full understanding of which requires you to know a third century Greek text about animals? <laughs> right. Fortunately, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we're all better for it. Um, that's, that's remarkable. I'm really glad you brought that to the table. That, I mean, it couldn't be more clear that that's absolutely what's going on here. Pete Palmieri, the water frog, becomes Peter Palmieri at the end of the story, the land, the land frog. A reading that I would like to give uh, to this story, Brandon, is uh, actually comes from an, uh, an interview that, uh, that Wolf gave um, uh, recently. I'm sorry, I don't have the date in front of me, to a journal from MIT in which he, he talked actually about um, his conversion to Catholicism as a 20-something man mm. recently returned from the Korean War. Wolf began a Catholic course of Catholic education so that he could marry his wife, Rosemary, who is Catholic, which, and this is a requirement in order to be married in the Catholic church, right. um, that he go through this course. And during this course, he, he decided to convert to Catholicism. And in an interview that he gave recently, he says that at this point in his life, just a year or two home from the Korean war, that his wife, Rosemary saved him not because she's the civilizing female of a classic Western film, but because she brought him to the faith, which is to say that mm. this transformation upon coming home from war happened to Wolf. And it's right. put here in the plot of this story, The Changeling. This story is about Wolf coming home from yes. the Korean War and finding God. That's mm-hmm. a very clear reading of the story. I think I think that, that lends itself to all of the the elements we've discussed. <laughs> This is absolutely a story about coming home from war or military service. Um, it's about trauma. It's about returning to safety and peaceableness. Uh, but it's also about finding peace. So, so many, so many who come home are looking for um, taking refuge in the past. And I think this story clearly demonstrates that you can't take refuge in the past after experiencing a trauma, or at least that's a part of the point of the story. And what you can take refuge in is the goodness of others and the gifts of others, which is what finding a Christian community can be like. Absolutely. And I will say um, that I wish that I'd had this story and frankly, um, our gloss on this story when I got home from the army. Yeah. I would have loved it. It It took me three or four years to be able to be a functioning person again in society. Um, I think with this story and with someone like you to talk about this story with, it could have shaved a year or two off right. of that. Maybe a year. Maybe. <laughs> it's hard to go home yeah, again. It's, hard. it's real hard. I, I mean, I, I, spent, I spent a year reading uh, Wheel of Time novels, which was a huge mistake, and I wish I had been reading more Wolf. I was reading Wolf back then. Not nearly as much as I'm reading no. now. And, and I hadn't read this story. Well, yeah. I, think, I think that's going to do it for this episode, Brandon. Um, I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know if you think that there was some kind of fairy creature in here, if you think that Pete Palmer and Peter Palmieri are the same person, are different people, how they're different people, how they're connected. Um, basically, anything we talked about, because we're sure we got it wrong. <laughs> and we look forward to hearing what you've got to say. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Next time, we'll be covering the story, Paul's Treehouse, which you can find in the collection, Castle of Days. Until then, we greet you and we say farewell. Farewell.